So let's turn in our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 4. So we will uh, be reading the first 11 verses of Matthew 4. As always, listen carefully as this is God's word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and we're ministering to him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us once again to the Gospel of Matthew to look at the life of Christ. Help us to learn more about your Son, and use this Gospel to cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. This is a text of great difficulty, difficulty for Jesus and difficulty for us. This is about temptation, something we all face, and something at which we all fail. Show us how Jesus doesn't fail. Show us how Jesus faces temptation. Show us how Jesus trusts God and his word. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us and help us to know Jesus better. And for this, we need your grace. So we pray, speak through these words of Matthew today, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus as we spend this year walking with him. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. As many of you know, when the elders conduct new member visits with people joining the church, one of our elders is well known for asking penetrating questions. Anyway, one of those questions this particular elder has been known to ask is, Who is Jesus? And in your answer to that question, somewhere there needs to be something along the lines of, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And then you're good. And his initials are Mark Rist. And and he's on sabbatical for the first half of this year. So if you're waiting to join the church, now's a great time. Anyways, he's actually... Quite gentle, very kind, and uh, we, meaning me, just like to give him a hard time. He's also a big hip-hop fan. (laughs) But you know something, not only is that a good question, who is Jesus, but that question is the main question of the Gospel of Matthew. 
And in particular, that question is the main question in Matthew 4, our passage for today, which deals with the temptation of Christ. Now, most sermons on this passage deal with the difficulty of facing temptation and, and of what we should do to overcome it. None of which is bad, and I'll get to a little of that later on. But that's not the main point of the text. The main point of the text is to answer this question, who is Jesus? And we actually have a somewhat complete answer to that question already. We've been given several answers at the very beginning of Matthew and Luke. The first verse of Matthew presents Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham. And uh, the verses that follow prove that combination of titles from his genealogy. Then the account of his birth reveals him as the one who will, in Matthew one twenty one save his people from uh, their sins. And two verses later, he's revealed as Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the second chapter, uh, Magi, the wise men from the east, came seeking Jesus as Matthew 2.2, 2, the king of the Jews. And then in Matthew 2.11, we read, they fell down and worshipped him. And then we saw John the Baptist identify Jesus as the long-awaited messianic king. And most impressive at all, at his baptism, the voice of God was heard from heaven declaring, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So, so far we have son of David, son of Abraham, Emmanuel, God with us, king of the Jews, Messiah, son of God. It's a pretty impressive list of titles. But is Jesus really God's son? Is he really the Messiah? Those are questions worth asking because not too long after this, even John the Baptist will have his doubts. He's going to send his disciples to Jesus in Matthew 11 and say, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Is Jesus really God's son? That's the question answered in this passage. We read of Jesus' temptation by Satan. And it's the key question because the temptation that Jesus faces, you'll notice it begins with this phrase, if you are the Son of God. That's the real challenge here. Satan is questioning Jesus' sonship. And therefore, Satan is questioning, challenging Jesus' divinity. So let's look at these temptations and see how they answer the question, who is Jesus. We'll start with the first one. It deals with the issues of appetite and power. So those are the first two blanks if you're uh, doing the outline and filling in the blanks. Verses 1 through 4. Chapter begins by saying, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If, if you are the Son of God... Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You need to see, first of all, the initiative here is with God. It says Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. The necessary starting place must be the nature of the temptation. He is led 
by God the Holy Spirit. This is not an accident. This is not Jesus stumbling into the way of temptation. This is part of the Father's plan. This is part of the Spirit's work. Jesus is being led into the wilderness to engage in deliberate divine combat with Satan. And that's not to be taken lightly. Because our Lord in the prayer, which comes only a few chapters later in this book, is going to instruct us to pray, lead us not into temptation. The Spirit had taken him to this place for the purpose of divine combat. That prayer, lead us not into temptation, comes from a man who knew what it was to be led into temptation. And so when the Lord says, lead us not into temptation, he's saying, I know what it is as the sinless Son of God to engage in deliberate divine combat over temptation. Pray that you are not put into that circumstance. Don't be so arrogant to think you can enter into a contest with Satan and come out unscathed. But if you do find yourself there, pray the Lord would deliver you from the evil one, which means you must depend on me. Now notice again, the Lord fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Like Moses and Elijah in their time in the wilderness, He's fasted, so he's physically weakened in preparation for this encounter, but he is spiritually strengthened. He's denied the flesh. He's prepared himself on our behalf. And so in this context of temptation, he engages Satan. Now, in English, the word tempt has come to mean, almost without exception, tempt to do evil. But the word for tempt in Hebrew and Greek means to test or to prove. It can include tempting to do evil, but it often means just testing to prove the value of, the quality of. So a person might test gold by submersing it in acid. If the gold is pure, nothing happens. If it's not, the impurity is burned off. And it's in this sense that Abraham was tested by God when he was called to sacrifice his son Isaac. And Job was tested by the things that happened to him. When the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, the act is a test designed to show that Jesus really was God's Son. And he's going to follow the path that God has laid out for him. So how did Satan go about it? This is a little less clear. <coughs> Obviously the cough's not entirely gone yet. Is it only an internal struggle within the mind of Jesus? Is there an actual appearance of Satan in some form? It's not an easy question to answer. Aspects of the temptation seem to be physical, such as the suggestion to turn the stones into bread. In fact, when Satan says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread, it seems as if he's standing there pointing at them. But in the same way, when he tempts Jesus to throw himself down from the temple, Part of the temptation seems to include a spectacular public display. On the other hand, the third temptation, he goes to a very high mountain, and there is no mountain anywhere in the world, let alone in Palestine, from which the tempter and Jesus could literally see all the kingdoms of the world. That temptation seems to have uh, been visionary. So it's difficult to say exactly how these temptations were expressed 
or what physical form, if any, Satan took. What is clear is that temptations come to Jesus from outside of himself. We're told that Satan came to Jesus, took him to the holy city, took him to a very high mountain. This is a really important distinction. Because the only way Jesus can be tempted is from an outside force and not internally. When we're tempted, we're attacked by an enemy within as well as by temptation from outside. James 1.14 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We're tempted by our flesh that's inside as well as by the world and the devil outside. Jesus, who had no sinful nature, could only be tempted by something outside himself. And that's what happens here. And Satan uses three temptations. Temptation to turn stones into bread. The temptation to test God by jumping from the temple. And the temptation to escape the cross by falling down and worshiping Satan. Each of those is related to what Jesus has heard at his baptism, which is what has immediately happened beforehand. And there's a spiritual principle here of spiritual blessing, his baptism, immediately followed by spiritual battle, the temptation. That principle applies to all of us as well. That's why you perhaps have often heard, if you have a mountaintop experience, get ready. Something's coming. Spiritual battle, spiritual blessing is almost always followed by spiritual battle. Certainly here. He had heard uh, from heaven at his baptism that he's God's beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Part of that endorsement came from Psalm 2, uh, which Frank shared with you uh, last week, the sermon that had been provided for him. The uh, And... Just as an aside, what Frank did last week was really hard. Reading somebody else's words written in somebody else's voice, and he did a great job. And, you know, that, that's not an easy thing to do. So please uh, commend him when you see him. Um, the second part of this comes from Isaiah. And we've been doing Isaiah in Sunday school. And Ron taught this morning, and over and over again, every point he hit, I was like, we're going to cover that again. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's coming up again. Uh, we see that Isaiah shows up a lot in the New Testament, not just with the Apostle Paul, but also uh, in the life of Christ. And so there, we're coming to the passages on the king being the suffering servant, which speaks as suffering as the only pathway to his ultimate triumph. So here, back to verse 3, says, The tempter came and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I think R.C. Sproul is right when he suggests the emphasis is really on the word if. If you are the Son of God. The temptation's focus lies in questioning God's earlier statement at his baptism that you are my son. And Satan immediately shows up and says, If. He's questioning not just Jesus, but he's challenging what God has just said. Now, back to the Garden of Eden, Eden, to which this account is connected, Adam and Eve were tempted to doubt the word of God. God had told them 
that they would die if they ate from the fruit of the forbidden tree. And Satan shows up and he counters Genesis 3, 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Here in a similar manner, Satan is suggesting that Jesus may not actually be God's son. Or if he is, he should go ahead and settle any doubts on the matter once and for all by performing an amazing miracle that would serve no purpose other than to fill his appetite and display his power. So it's a temptation really to question the express word of God hidden under what seems to be a concern for his physical hunger. He tempts the Lord to exercise his divine power to bring relief to his human suffering. You know, it's as if he's tempting him to think, well, perhaps the Father won't provide for my hunger. I'm famished. I've been without food for 40 days. Perhaps the Father won't provide. And he tempts the Lord to an explicit distrust of God's providence. You know, Jesus... Perhaps God has forgotten about you. Perhaps he's forgotten that you're out here in the wilderness and you need food. Just go ahead and turn the stones to bread. I know you can do it. After all, you're the son of God, aren't you? Surely God the Father, who by the Spirit had led the Lord into the wilderness, had a plan by which to bring him heavenly manna to the Son. Surely he had a way to provide. He put him there, and Satan wants him to distrust what the Father is doing. But Jesus has no trouble answering Satan. And he does it by quoting from Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy 8.3. But he answered, it is written, Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, if the temptation were only to misuse his power, his response really wouldn't be to the point. But if the temptation is to doubt the word of God by testing it, then Jesus' answer essentially means it doesn't really matter much whether I have physical bread to eat since God will preserve my life as long as he wants to so I can do what he wants me to do. And I'm going to trust him in that. What, what does matter is not bread. It's whether I believe God's word implicitly or not. If I should doubt his word, even for a moment, all is lost. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God who already has all the power of divinity. He doesn't need any more from Satan or to foolishly show his power off in order to end his fast. Well, since appetite and power don't work, Satan comes back with plan B. And perhaps this time he'll give in to the temptation of approval and glory. Approval and glory, verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the temptation now comes, verse 6. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. The truth of God's word lies behind the next temptation. Jesus had rejected the first temptation by quoting Scripture. So the devil gets into the act himself, says something like, just sort of imagining this conversation, well, I see you're a student of the Bible. 
since you've memorized that verse from Deuteronomy. Of course, I'm a student of the Bible myself. And not long ago, I was reading Psalms, and I came across Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, which says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Do you believe that? I believe that. In fact, I believe it so much, I'm going to make a suggestion. Let's go up to the highest point on the temple, and you jump off, and God will save you. And everyone will see the miracle to realize you're the Messiah and follow you immediately. It'll make a great impression, and I'm sure it'll get your ministry off to a great start. We have no idea if he actually said anything like that, but it's certainly all implied. And Satan tempts Christ to advance the work of God by spectacular and obviously worldly means. It's exactly what a lot of people in the church are doing today. They try to impress people with so-called signs and wonders or with entertainment that's reminiscent of television. And in our world, it's usually seen as a means of self-serving glory trying to earn the approval of others. We cannot accomplish invisible spiritual work with outward worldly means. At the same time, the devil's suggestion is also a temptation of spiritual presumption, to demand a supernatural sign from God in response to an action that he's neither encouraged nor commanded. And again, Jesus replies from another quote from Deuteronomy, this time Deuteronomy 6.16. Again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Essentially meaning, Satan, if you want, you want me to test God, but you have to understand, God the Father is not the one being tested here. I'm the one being tested. And that means my responsibility is not to challenge the Father, but to trust him. And in this reply, very subtly, Jesus introduces an important principle of sound Bible study which is not only to trust the word of God implicitly and absolutely, but to interpret scripture with scripture. Never taking a verse out of context, but interpreting it uh, by use of other verses or the Bible as a whole. The Protestant reformers called it the analogy of faith, meaning that scripture interprets scripture. The Westminster Confession of Faith expresses it well. It says, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. This does not mean we won't encounter passages that are difficult to understand. On the contrary, it suggests we will encounter those kinds of passages at the same time, it says God is the author of Scripture, and for that reason, the statements of Scripture always complement and reinforce uh, each other when rightly understood. And Jesus knew this, which is why he appealed to Deuteronomy to reject the devil's temptation. When taken as a whole, the Bible will always provide a consistent way of life, trusting God and his word. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God who already has all the glory of divinity. He doesn't need any more from Satan or foolishly to display his glory in order to win the approval of others. Well, appetite and power didn't work, and approval and glory aren't needed. So Satan comes back with plan C. 
And surely this time Jesus will give in to the temptation of ambition and kingly rule, kingdom rule, ambition and kingdom rule, starting at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. In the third temptation, Satan throws off all the subtlety and asks for Jesus' worship. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and he offers them in exchange for Christ's worship. This is the only temptation that doesn't refer directly to the words, you are my beloved son. But they're still in the background because they come from Psalm 2. And also in Psalm 2, when the father promises his son, he promises him precisely these kingdoms as his inheritance. It says in Psalm 2, 7 and 8, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is what Satan is offering to Jesus, but in the world's way, that is, by an alliance with Satan and evil rather than by the cross. Jesus has been appointed by God to rule the world. Revelation 11.15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. However, the path to this triumph is through suffering. And Satan tries to distract him from the path. He says, I'll give you everything in the world. I will give you the kingdoms. I will give you the glory if you just bow down and worship me. Satan has dropped his pretense and makes this final desperate effort to corrupt Jesus. And he reveals his supreme purpose to induce Jesus to worship him. And by some supernatural accommodation, he has now taken Jesus to a very high mountain. He's shown Jesus the glories of Egypt, its pyramids, temples, libraries, and vast treasures, the power and splendor of Rome with its mighty empire spread over the known world. He showed great Athens and magnificent Corinth, and of course, wondrous Jerusalem, the royal city of David, and all the rest, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And as God's own proclaimed king of kings, Jesus has a divine right to all those kingdoms. And it's to that right that Satan appeals in this last temptation. Why should you have to wait for what is already rightfully yours? You deserve to have it now. Why submit as a suffering servant when you can reign as king? I am only offering you what the Father has already promised. It is a radical distrust of God's plan because he's tempting the Lord Jesus to receive the kingdoms of the world without going the way of the cross. He knows that Jesus has already set his heart towards the cross. He knew the pain. He knew the sufferings. He knew the humiliation that was going to come by way of the cross. And he says, Jesus, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world and their glory. If you just worship me, you won't have to go the way of the cross. And Satan is offering the world to Jesus on his own corrupt terms, not God's. That which the Father promised to the Son because of his righteous obedience, Satan is offering to the Son in exchange for his unrighteous 
righteous disobedience. God's plan in testing the son is to prove the son's worthiness to inherit and rule the world. Satan's plan is to draw the son away from that worthiness by enticing him to grab the kingdom the father has already promised to give him. And instead of enduring the long, bitter, humiliating, painful road to the cross, and even longer wait in heaven for God's time to be complete, Jesus could rule now. Satan tempts Jesus to distrust God. How appealing it would be in the wilderness. Famished, realizing the contest, what it's going to cost. How appealing to give in. Satan's grand strategy is deception. He can't produce in any of these temptations what he's promised. He never does. But he presents what is evil in an attempt to convince us that it is good. And so Jesus replies to Satan, verse 10, using another verse, Deuteronomy 6.13, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In all scripture, there is no better example of the power of specific verses of the word of God to turn Satan away and save the one being tempted. I have told you for years, God's word is powerful in and of itself, but you have to know it and you have to use it. Who is Jesus? He is the son of God who already has all the kingdoms of the world. He doesn't need to get from Satan what's already guaranteed by the father. And even though I told you it's not the main point of the passage, you can't help but ask the question, but what about our temptations? But what about our temptations? should be obvious from everything I've said about the temptation of Jesus and how he overcame them. There is an indirect application for our lives. When we're tempted, we have to stand against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I think there's some three, at least three, general principles to remember when we struggle with temptation. First, we face the same battle. It's helpful to point out when talking about Satan that the devil is not omnipresent as God is. Satan cannot be everywhere tempting everyone all at once, all at the time. He is only a creature. And that means he's probably never tempted you or anyone you know directly. In the entire Bible, we only know of a few people, Eve, but not Adam, Job, Jesus, Judas, and Ananias, but not Sapphira, who were tempted by Satan directly. Now, this doesn't mean we don't face spiritual battles every day. Clearly, we do. The Apostle Paul wrote about those battles in Ephesians 6. He said, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These battles are so fierce that Paul warns us to be ready for them by arming ourselves with God's armor. We are, continue the passage, Ephesians 6. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. 
In other words, we must be fully equipped for the struggle. We face the same battle. Second principle, we have the same choice. As Jesus did, we have the choice of trusting God and sticking to the path he sets before us or seeking to win victories for ourselves in the world's way. What will it be? Will we go God's way or will we follow the world, the flesh, and the devil? Remember, Joshua challenged his people the same way. Joshua 24. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Every temptation, no matter how difficult, gives us the simple choice of belief or unbelief, following God or in most cases following self. If we can remember that choice and make it correctly, then we can have the same victory. We can have the same victory. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 10, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. True. But what is the path to that victory? The temptation of our Lord points the way. It is written, it is written, it is written. As the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians, the only offensive weapon that we have is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Remember Christ's example. Here is Jesus, Holy Son of the Almighty God, the one in whom neither uh, Satan nor man can find any wrong, and they can't gain even the tiniest foothold. Jesus' eyes are always on the glory of his Father. He lived in the closest communion with his Father, But if Jesus, your Lord and Savior, needed to know Scripture in order to resist Satan and win the victory over him, how much more do you and I need to know Scripture in order to win a corresponding victory? You must know God's Word if you're going to overcome temptation. God's words are wonderful words. They speak to every need of the human heart. But to be useful to us, The Bible's words must be yours and mine specifically. We need to know them and study them and memorize them and learn them. Only the words of God that we actually know will be useful to us in living for God and in overcoming temptation. Trust his word. Don't trust your emotions. Don't trust your opinions. In the wilderness, heed only the voice of God. But even more than that, I think we need to train ourselves to look to Jesus for our salvation. Not just our eternal salvation, but also our salvation from temptation. That's the crucial takeaway from this message. When temptation comes, don't look at the temptation, look at Jesus. Fix your eyes on him and his word. Trust him, rely on his spirit. Through his word and by his spirit, he is here to help us. He promises us that. Hebrews 2, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now you and I both know It's far easier to say what we should do when facing temptation 
and it's far harder to actually do it. Perhaps you're wrestling with temptation. Perhaps you're struggling with looking to Jesus. Perhaps your life has gotten hard. Perhaps you feel like you're living in the wilderness. There's the wilderness of the desert, parched ground, sharp rocks, shifting sand, burning sun, thorns that cut, miraging oasis, wavy horizons ever beyond reach. That's the wilderness of the desert. But there's also a wilderness of the soul. Parched promises, sharp words, shifting commitments, burning anger, rejections that cut, miraging hope, distant solutions ever beyond reach. That's the wilderness of the soul. Some of you know the first, all of you know the second. Jesus knew both. The wilderness is not a typical time for Jesus. Normalcy is left at the Jordan, and it's not going to be rediscovered till Galilee. And though you don't have to go to Israel to experience the wilderness, you can experience the wilderness right here. A cemetery will do just fine. So will a hospital. Grief can lead you into the desert. So can divorce or debt or depression. We've all received word from friends They have to go back for more chemo, another round of radiation, maybe physical therapy, then going back to the counselor and we thought they'd mastered that issue. It's wilderness. I've run into a couple men recently who talked about marriage being hard. How's it going? It's going, they shrug. Wilderness. I just took a quick trip to see my mom and my brother-in-law. Neither are doing well. I don't expect either to last a long time. And you have friends, and some of you in this church and some elsewhere, who are struggling. End-of-life decisions. You have caring for aging parents. You're staring at a future of medical care, assisted living, nursing homes, hospice, and death. And everybody's just waiting. Wilderness. Sometimes you can chalk up wilderness wanderings to transition. Jesus entered the Jordan River a carpenter and exited a Messiah. Been through any transitions, a transfer, a move, a new house, job promotion, job demotion, job loss. If so, be careful. The wilderness might be near. How do you know when you're in one? First of all, usually you're lonely. Whether in fact or in feeling, There's a sense that no one can help understand or rescue you. Doctor after doctor, resume after resume, diaper after diaper, Zoloft after Zoloft, heartache after heartache. The calendar is stuck in January, you're stuck in South Dakota, and you don't remember what spring smells like. And the struggle can seem endless. In the Bible, the number of 40 is associated with lengthy battles. Noah faced rain for 40 days. Moses faced the desert for 40 years. Jesus is led into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. The battle isn't limited to three questions. The wilderness is a long, lonely winter. But know this. Jesus went into the wilderness for you. Christ knows the wilderness more than you might imagine. Why did Jesus go to the desert? 
Does the word rematch mean anything to you? For the second time in history, an unfallen mind will be challenged by a fallen angel. The second Adam has come to succeed where the first Adam failed. We can't miss comparing the circumstances of Jesus with those of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they were tempted. And Jesus' test is more severe. Adam and Eve were in paradise. Jesus in this vast, desolate wilderness of Judah. Adam and Eve were physically content and satisfied. They were free to eat from any of the trees of the garden except uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus is hungry. Our text tells us he's hungry, having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Adam and Eve were together. They had each other for company and support. Jesus is alone. Adam is challenged to remain sinless in a sinless world. Christ, on the other hand, is challenged to remain sinless in a sin-filled world. And yet Adam and Eve rapidly succumbed to Satan's charm, carrying the entire human race into sin, misery, destruction, and physical and spiritual death. (coughs) Jesus stands firm as the Savior who brings life and salvation to the human race. Jesus succeeds where Adam failed. This victory, according to the Apostle Paul, is a victory for us. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. I like the way that reads in the message, which is a paraphrase of the scriptures in modern language. And it says, here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us into all this trouble with sin and death, another person did, us, did it right and got us out of it. In this wilderness, our Lord would meet Satan face to face and he would conquer where Adam failed. Where Adam's failure and the covenant of works plunged the people of the world into a state of a sin and misery, the Lord Jesus would do battle and save his people by his righteousness. The Lord God's giving of us into the hand of Christ is not just an act of grace, it's an act of righteousness. As Paul stresses so clearly in Romans 1, because the Lord Jesus earned us. And here before our eyes we see your Lord contest with the one who would sift you like wheat and have your souls. And Jesus wins. He doesn't do it for himself. He does it for you. So ask yourself this day this one question. Who is Jesus? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. We're going to finish with the Lord's Prayer, and the words will be up on the screen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. In this passage, we see your son equipped by the Spirit in full measure to do battle with Satan and with his kingdom on our behalf. And we know that in the end, the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of your son. And so, as he has taught us, let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors.
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.